Well, let's talk this morning about the Christmas story because it's, it's Christmas Sunday, and I'm so glad that you are here. I'll be honest, I, I wasn't quite sure what we'd be looking at this morning, and it could just be me and my kids doing the Christmas story, but I'm so glad that you are here, and it's wonderful to worship. Did you know this is uh, the, the only Sunday that, that we will have as Christmas Day for the next 11 years? Isn't that crazy? It'll be 2033. So when we realized that, we told Tobiah, like, you'll be 20 years old. You'll be off to college the next time this happens, which he didn't like. He's like, what? No, don't think about that. I'm like, you think it's scary for you? Think about mom and dad. It's crazy. But it kind of jumps rather crazily here. So today, it's, this, it's really a, a pretty unique opportunity we have to come together, and I'm so glad that we have. Now, over this whole Advent season that we have been having, we've been talking about how God did some really amazing things, some surprising things, right, in the little town of Bethlehem. It's a small, unlikely, insignificant little place that God chose to do some big things in. And the biggest thing of all that ever happened in Bethlehem is what we've, of course, come to celebrate today. The fact that God fulfilled his promise to send a Savior to deliver his people from their sin And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The title of our sermon this morning is simply this, Christ has come. Christ has come. If you have your Bible, we'll be in Luke 2 this morning, and we'll we'll tell, kind of unpack that story from the text of Scripture that I read from the Storybook Bible to start. I really think this is a story we should never think that we're too old to hear. We should never get bored by. It's an incredible story to see how God fulfilled his promise and the son came in this first advent, his first coming to earth to bring a message. So let's start with verses one through five in Luke chapter two. Now in, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his hometown. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, and he was to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, the start of this story, I think, gives us a glimpse into one more kind of amazing, surprising thing that I want us to see this Advent season. God works in ways that are so much greater than the ways you and I could ever plan to work things out, right? And we've been talking about that all throughout the Advent season. God chooses unlikely people and unlikely places. He's working behind the scenes in ways that people involved never really even know. And God does unforeseen things, unpredictable things, so that despite how messy it seems, despite how dark the world looks around us sometimes, despite how hopeless we even may feel, the Bible reveals to us that God is always working to bring his good and perfect plan to pass. That's what we've been talking about here in this series. No one would have chosen or suspected the little town of Bethlehem to be the site of the most amazing thing that's happened in the history of the world, right? And even here in the Christmas story that we just read, these first five verses, we see how God has been working to orchestrate things in unforeseen ways, even in these events, too. So my question for you to think about is this. Have you ever stopped to think about the problem that we find in the Christmas story with the fact that Mary and Joseph are from a town called Nazareth, which is in the Galilee, the northern region of Israel, and that's where the angel Gabriel, like we read in the, in the Bible, storybook Bible earlier, that's where the angel shows up and talks to Mary. That's where he talks to Joseph. It's all taking place in this town called Nazareth. But if you were here last week and you remember that Messiah would be born 
but he would be north in the town of Bethlehem, right? So here they are up in Nazareth, which is up in the, the northern part of Israel. That's where Mary's from. That's where Joseph's house is. That's where all the angels appear and talk to them and all that kind of stuff. But in Micah 5, 2, God had said, But it's in you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. One who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So there's a big gap here. About 70 miles kind of straight down, if you will. 90 miles to walk there based on how the, the roads go. Today, that's not really a big deal, right? Even, even today, if you went to Israel, you could hop in a car in Nazareth, and in about two hours, accounting, not accounting for traffic, you know, if that was crazy, but about two hours, you can take the roads all the way down and get right to Bethlehem. That's no big deal. We drive two hours all the time, right? But back then, in these days, before we had cars and all this type of transportation, if you were really, really eager to get there, that's a four-day journey. And if you have to travel there, and the woman you're traveling with is nine months pregnant, that's like a seven-day journey. It's going to take a little bit longer to get there, right? So think about this for just a second. God's done some big miracles in our Christmas story that hopefully you've been thinking about in these last couple days already. God sent an angel to talk to Mary. He sent an angel to talk to Joseph. The Holy Spirit himself came upon Mary, overshadowed her. The little baby Jesus was, was God himself right in her womb. And yet, God's going to need to do one more miracle, and that is move a pregnant woman 70 miles south to get to the place where God has said the Messiah was to be born. And here's what's so cool. God did something very surprising in making that happen. He used the Roman Caesar and the governor of Syria and their plan to conduct a registration to count all the people in the, in the Roman Empire. And through the orders they sent out, everyone must go back to their ancestral hometown through those events. Those guys had no idea they were being used, but working behind the scenes set everything up so that nine months pregnant, Mary has to travel with Joseph from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem. And verse 6 then tells us this. While they were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lied him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, this is the big moment, right? This is, we're all excited in Christmas. This is what it's all about. As great as all the gifts are, uh, the big meals and the fun and the family time and all the new toys to play with or all the books you got to read, that's my favorite part of, of Christmas, right? Despite all of those things, it's this part of the story here that Mary gave birth to Jesus, God the Son, in Bethlehem, just as had been promised. That's what it's supposed to be all about for us as Christians, right? So last month, as, as you know, in the month of November, I had the joy of getting to go to Israel on a two-week study trip. And I told you when I came back, the, the first place we stayed in Israel was actually in Bethlehem. And one of the highlights of our time there in that town was getting to go see some of the places that are connected to this very text that we're talking about today. Last uh, week in Sunday school, I was sharing with the adults that one of the really cool things is we're pretty certain we know where Jesus was actually born. And to have that knowledge is, is a pretty cool thing because people didn't, didn't do what we do, right? There, there was no photos that were taken with geotag locations on them. And people didn't really think to make detailed notes of where they were. And there wasn't a big hospital, so you couldn't go, oh, yeah, like I could tell I was born in Wichita at, uh, at a hospital there. We could go, you know, drive there. And it's still the hospital because it's a big, giant building, right? 
But there, this was, was much more rare. So the fact that we know where Jesus was born, that's a pretty big deal. The reason we know is because really, really early in church history, people started to think, you know what? Jesus was so important, so amazing. He was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling that prophecy. We should figure out where that was. And they began to do some research. And about 150, 160 AD, that very spot to conduct worship services. And not very long after that, by the year 325, they actually went and built a church over that location to mark it and kind of protect it. And that, that church kind of has had a long history. It's been rebuilt and expanded and renovated, but it's still there. And that church is actually the longest continually operating Christian church in the world to this day. Today, Christmas Day, there will be worship services in that church right on top of the place where Jesus was born. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. But here's the thing. While we know the place, we know where it was and built that church over the top of it. If you ever get the chance to go to Bethlehem like I did, and you go there, and you follow the little tour path, and they have a little path for you to go down. You, you can go in, and you can look at that spot, but it won't look anything like it did that night when Jesus was born. All of us probably have an image in our minds of what the place looked like where Jesus was born, right? How many of you have nativity sets in your house? Anybody got a nativity set? Okay. How many have more than two nativity sets? Keep them up. You got more than three, more than four. Anybody more than four? No? So three? Oh, oh, I got four. I got four in the back. <laughs> how, many, how many do you have, Paul? How many? Probably 95. <laughs> 95. Following in, in Pastor Ray's footsteps there. Ray Brewer, if you didn't know, collects nativity sets. He's got them all over the office. Uh, kind of crazy. Okay. So excluding Paul and their craziness there, how many do you guys have, Linda? How many do you have? Oh, wow, you're, so you're in the crazy camp too. <laughs> That's awesome. So if you have a nativity set, it, it probably looks, you probably have one, if it's traditional, something like this, right? You may have some other really different ones. You, if you have young kids in the house and you know that they'll break the nice one like this, you may have one like this. This is what we have in the living room. Isn't that cute? That's, that's Noah's toy. So we're doing Advent devotions. He's over there. He's like, you know, knocking the donkeys together, pushing stuff over. It's a lot of fun. Okay, so if you have a nativity set, though, and it looks like this or it looks like the other one, then you've got this idea of Jesus being born in something that looks kind of like that, like a little wooden barn, maybe some, some you know, hay or something on top, and you're, you're kind of imagining that because, well, that's what a stable looks like where we're from, right? But the thing is, in Israel, particularly around Bethlehem, there's nothing that looks like that. There wasn't anything that looked like that when Jesus was born. The whole area of Bethlehem, this whole part of, of Israel, really, all across the area, they don't have a lot of the wood that you and I have. There's no big trees in it, really, at all. You don't have oak, you don't have maple, ash, elm. You got none of those that are big enough to, to kind of cut down and have a little lumber yard. That just doesn't exist there. The trees that grow in that area are, are fruit-bearing trees. You have fig trees, you have pomegranate trees, and the most common type of tree is an olive tree. This is what an olive tree, these are some of the olive trees that we saw there. So those really aren't all that tall. I'm kind of at a little bit of a low angle, but you're talking about maybe six to 10 feet at the most. And those, those trunks are not very thick and the branches are, are pretty thin that go up to the, to the olive bearing. So olive trees don't grow big, strong trunks and branches that you can go out and harvest and cut down and make some nice two by fours and go out and build a stable like we would here. It's interesting, if you go there, everything in this whole part of Israel, it's all built using stone. 
Even to this very day, the buildings, the stores, the houses, they're all made from stone. Stone walls, stone roofs, stone stairs, stone everywhere. And since that's how they built their homes and their stores and their shops, they're not going out and buying really expensive wood that's been brought in from somewhere else to build a stable for the animals, right? No, what a stable looked like in those days wasn't a little building made of wood. There actually would have been caves. There's caves everywhere all around this area. And if you're going to get stone to build things with, you're going to find, oh, there's a cave, and I'm going to kind of like start cutting out the stone from that cave and drag it out to make the cave bigger so I can use that space and move that stone up and build my Bethlehem, was that we got to go to a cave that they found sheep bones in. So we know shepherds used it as a stable all the way back at the time when Jesus was born. And you can go into that place, and you can see what a cave in the first century would have looked like And I took a picture to show you. Would you like to see the picture of what the cave there in Bethlehem would look like? So when you imagine it, you want to imagine where were Mary and Joseph, where was baby Jesus born? It wasn't what the nativity scene looks like. It was in a cave that looks just like this. Here's this cave. The only thing that's really kind of added there is right there that that this kind of an altar area and some benches that the uh, Roman Catholics put down there because they'll do services down in this area. But here is this little cave underground. You just walk down a few steps into it, and that's where the sheep were brought in. They would have been kept at night. The animals would have been in that cave just like that. And we know the time Jesus was born, that exact cave was being used by shepherds to store sheep. That's pretty cool. So while we're pretty sure that the church of the nativity, it's built on top of the right location because there's a cave just like this right underneath it. And if you go in there and you walk down the steps, that's what you get to look into is a cave down underneath this church. This one's a little bit bigger. But that one is because of people have known this is where Jesus was born. They put gold and marble and all kinds of decorations down there. It doesn't look anything like the cave the night that Jesus was born. This is what that would have looked like. So imagine Mary and Joseph and a few animals inside that cave and the baby Jesus born there. That's what it would have looked like. So now you can kind of picture it a little bit better. Our Christmas story continues by telling us this in verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. But the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praise with God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is another favorite part of the Christmas story for so many of us, right? We love to talk about this and think about this, even sing about this, right? Mary and Joseph and the little baby Jesus, they're in that type of cave like what we just saw. Imagine them there. And right outside on the hillside are shepherds watching their sheep when suddenly a great surprise takes place for them. First one angel shows up to speak to them and then a whole multitude of them fill the hillside and bring this message of good news of great joy and worship towards God that his promise to send the Christ is being fulfilled. Another really cool thing that we got to see when we were there in Bethlehem was the hillside where we think this text took place. Now, there's no angels in my picture. That would have been awesome. But would you like to see the hillside where we think the angels appeared that night singing God's praises? Yeah, go ahead and put it up for us. Right there, imagine you're a shepherd, 
And you've got sheep, they're around you, they're on the hillside with you, and right across the way here on this hillside, which is, which is a little more green during the, the growing time, I'm there in November, right, so it's not, uh, not great greenery right now, but imagine there's grass over there and there's sheep out there, and that's where everyone's kind of camped out, when suddenly, right on top of that hill there, an angel appears and speaks to the shepherds. And then all of a sudden, a great multitude of the heavenly host Fill that hillside. Can you, can you just kind of imagine that? Like, do you have that kind of creative thought there? Isn't that amazing? When we stood there and looked at that with the group that we were with, we, we, began, we began singing some Christmas carols. We thought it was pretty, pretty neat to imagine what it must have been like that night to hear the angels sing, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What an incredible experience for those lowly shepherds, Right? But see, the crazy thing to me about the shepherds is, as amazing as that view with all angels filling the hillside would have been, that wasn't even the best thing they got to see that night. They see all of that, they hear that message, and then we read the rest of the story of the shepherds. So when the angels had went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem, which is just to the left of that hill you're looking at. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it were wondering at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The shepherds go from the hillside to the cave, they find Mary and Joseph and the little baby Jesus. They see him. They understand this is the Christ. He's the one who's been long promised. This is the one that we've been told to expect and long and wait for. And they get to see little baby Jesus. We're in that cave, right? And it's all stone. And the manger, the little trough where the animals would have fed, that wasn't wood either. It wasn't that cute little kind of X cross thing, you know, that we all have for the little baby Jesus. It was just cut out of stone. Just a big, just a big gouge in stone where they would have laid all the, all the feed, that's where the little baby Jesus was lying. Just hours after being born, the shepherds got to see him. God's amazing promises about sending the Savior, about how he would be born, to a virgin, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, all came to pass in Bethlehem, just as God had said it would. The shepherds got to see it was true, and then they went and they told everybody about Jesus, right? That's what the text tells us. They went and told everybody what they had heard, and that's what you and I are supposed to be doing today too, right? When we see the good news of Jesus, when we hear, he's come, this is who he is, we are supposed to go and tell others the good news, but unlike the shepherds who just get to go and say, he's here, he's arrived, you and I know the rest of the story. We know the purpose for which he came and the things which he accomplished, they saw Jesus as the baby, but we see Jesus and the whole of his life and his ministry and all that he did for us. So like I said before, there's all around Bethlehem, not a lot of big, strong oak or maple trees, but there are a lot of those olive trees around the area. And in fact, what we were told when we were there is one of the biggest industries for Bethlehem itself today, it's all based around those olive trees and what they can do with those with those trees. So in Bethlehem, like pretty much everywhere in Israel, you'll find olives are served at almost every meal, right? Breakfast, lunch, dinner. 
there's something with olives there or just olives on a plate for you to eat, right? I don't think we went anywhere where they did not try to give us green olives, which are fine the first couple times, and then you're like, all right, I'm done with this. You know, like, thank you. No, I'm good. They have them everywhere, though. All around the area, you can also find in Bethlehem lots of olive oil because they will... They'll, they'll make olive oil there. And I, I love olive oil. Malia says that uh, coconut oil and avocado oil are better, but I still like olive oil. So when we run out, I go buy that, and I fill my jar back up, and I use it when I cook. But anyway, but the biggest product that's made from the olive trees there is actually from the olive wood. Now, it's not big. You can't build big, strong houses out of it, but you can create some beautiful things out of olive wood. And one of the nights we were there in Bethlehem, after a full day of traveling sites all around the area, we came back into town. It was already late, and we stopped kind of on the side of the road and went up to this store that had been closed, and they opened up just for our group to come in. And you walk in, and it's everything made of olive wood everywhere. Thousands and thousands of different things, from small little tiny things to really intricately carved things. This incredible chess set that I really, really, really wanted to buy. The thing was huge, though, and I'm looking at the price tag, and my first thought was, oh, this is in shekels, because you've got to kind of convert the rate. No, it was in dollars, and it was $15,000. Beautiful, and I'm like, who buys this? I want to meet that person. Any souvenirs for the kids and for Malia? But they got a chance to buy these communion cups that are made from olive wood, from trees right there in Bethlehem. These are handmade by Christians in that little town. I brought them back so that you and I could take the Lord's Supper together with these cups. And then they're yours, the one you, you take today. Don't leave it here. That's yours to take home and have. Uh, I know it's not the biggest gift you're probably getting this Christmas, but I, hopefully it's a gift that you will cherish and appreciate. It makes you think of of Jesus and the rest of the Christmas story, what he came to do. You see, it might seem a little bit odd to you to take the Lord's Supper on, on Christmas Sunday because we, we usually we want to focus this time as closely as we can on Jesus' birth and the way Christ coming fulfilled those promises that, that God had made for all that time. And, and yes, we want to do that, but really this is the perfect way for us to bridge to the end of the story because Jesus' coming really, when we understand why he came and what he came to do, makes this whole story really pieced together for us. To understand the purpose that was fulfilled when Christ went, not just to a cradle for us, but to a cross. So there wasn't much wood there that night Jesus was born. The stable wasn't made with logs the way we normally envision it in our mind, but now you, you know, you have a better picture to put in your mind. But there certainly was a wooden cross at the place where Jesus died. And so while I love to celebrate the birth of Jesus, it's knowing what he did in his life and how he died that makes his coming truly good news for us. So I went to Bethlehem, and then I went to Jerusalem, and I went to a whole bunch of other places all around Israel. But the reason I went was just I wanted to see them. I've been studying these things, as, as Eric had, had said to me at one point, you've been studying these things for, for years, and now you get to kind of visualize it and see it and, and be there and kind of really kind of grasp what those things were like. And that's, that's why I went on this study trip. But when Jesus came first to Bethlehem and then to Jerusalem, he didn't come to be a tourist. He wasn't coming on a study assignment, trying to figure out what life was like in Israel at that point in time. No, Christ came to be the Savior of his people. Christmas happened because Jesus had a definitive, clear purpose in his mind. He was the one who would come and bring peace through his own sacrifice on the cross by dying in the place of his sinful people, shedding his own 
blood, having his body broken so that you and I could have forgiveness of our sins and eternal life instead of eternal suffering for the things that we have done against God. So while Christmas season, this whole time, it's a great opportunity for us to worship Jesus in fun ways. Giving gifts can be an act of worship. Receiving gifts can be an act of worship. Having Christmas trees and decorations can help us worship God. Eating the, the big feasts that we do this time of year. Having special events. Going to gatherings. They're all great opportunities for worship if you use them properly. But Jesus actually gave us something even better than our Christmas traditions, even better than our Christmas season to remember who he is and what he's done. And that's this ordinance that we'll partake of today. About 33 years after that night of his birth, Jesus was betrayed by one of the, one of the ones who had followed him for three years in his ministry, one he had called a friend. And the night that that happened, Jesus took a cup and a piece of unleavened bread and he told his followers, here is how I want you to remember me hate to break it to us. He didn't say, commemorate this day by giving of gifts, having big feasts. He said, here is the practice I want you to do. It's simple. It's simple and clear. So this morning, we'll do what he told us to do. We'll take a cup and a piece of bread, and we will celebrate that Jesus came, not just that he was born as a baby, but that we know the purpose of that coming, that he was ultimately here in order to die to save us from our sins. So if you're a guest with us this morning, and, and you're not a member of our church, but you are a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here with us, and you're welcome to take in this celebration with us here in just a few moments. If you understand that Jesus is the Son of God who came to save his people, and that's your hope, your faith is in him, you're trusting him to be your Savior, nothing else than, I'm so Christian. And maybe that's because, yeah, the Christmas story, that, that's kind of fun and, and nostalgic and everything. I like to hear it, but I'm not sure I believe all of it. Or, or maybe you're like, yeah, I, I kind of buy into everything you're saying, but I, I just I don't know that I think Jesus alone is the same. I mean, I'm pretty good. I work really hard. My merit, the things I do will earn me my salvation. If that's you, if you're not a, a Christian who's just trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then I'm just going to ask you to, to stay where you are this morning. You can watch and you can observe and you can kind of see those of us who do partake and, and how meaningful that is to us. But understand, like, just taking these elements, they're, they're not going to help you apart from faith. In fact, the Bible tells us that's a, a sin for which one day you will answer to Jesus when he comes in his second advent to this world. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to invite Christians to participate in the, in the Lord's Supper together. And we're going to do it a little bit differently because of, of these cups and how we're going to do this. What we're going to do is in just a moment, we're going to start a, a video version of a Christmas song, We Three Kings, which has incredibly rich verses. I don't know if you've ever sang all the verses of We Three Kings. Usually we get through the first one and then we're like, eh, okay, and then we're, we're kind of done. But you can listen to these words and about the gifts and what they mean and how they foreshadow the whole message of Jesus and the whole ministry of his life. The words will be on the screen, so you can kind of see those as we go. But what I'm going to ask you to do in just a moment is I'm going to ask you, if you're going to participate, if you're a Christian this morning, is to kind of step out. We're going to come up this aisle on the outside, and you're going to grab one of these cups, and I'm going to serve you this piece of bread, and then take those things and, and come back to your seat and have a seat, and in a moment, together, we'll, we'll all take together. So after the song's over and everyone's seated, then, then we'll eat and we'll drink together. But Heather, if you'll cue up that song for us, you can take just a moment, again, step out, go to that side, come up this side here, and I will serve you the bread, and you can take a cup, and we'll prepare to receive this morning. Let's prepare ourselves to take these elements today, and I want you to be aware of a couple things with them. 
the bread you have in your hand is a little different than the bread we normally take, right? This is a lot more like what the disciples and Jesus would have shared that first night. If you read in the text, it says, after dinner, Jesus took bread and he broke it and gave it to them, which is what I had to do with this bread, is broke it for us to be able to take together today. What you hold in your hands was torn, and there's a symbolism to that. This is what would happen to the body of Jesus. Well, he was born as this cute, precious little baby who we all would, would want to imagine nothing bad would ever happen to. We know at the end of his life, it was filled with great suffering, brokenness, and pain. That was for us. As he handed them this bread, which had been torn to pieces, he said, this is my body, which will be torn, will be broken for you. And so when we eat it, we are to remember that he came he called himself in his ministry the bread of life. And he says, all that partake of him, not of physical bread like this, but of him, have faith in him, will receive life everlasting. Even though you and I, we are broken in this world, we'll be made whole because he was broken for us. Let's take this bread together this morning. Also a little unusual for us, of course, are the cups from which we'll take the juice today. And I'll tell you ahead of time, as you prepare to take this, it may even taste a little bit different than what you're used to. There might be a little bit of bitterness that will seep into the juice from the fact that it's in these olive oil communion. It's part of the reason some traditions will use a more bitter fruit of the vine intentionally, so that when you drink from the cup, you experience the bitterness that Jesus himself felt in his suffering. The price that Jesus had to pay for you and I to be forgiven of our sins, it was a very bitter thing. And Christmas is a sweet time of joy, and, and that's what we want it to be anyway, right? But like we said at the very start when we prayed, there's real bitterness, there's real difficulty in this life because of sin. And Jesus is the one who says he came to drink a bitter cup of God's wrath so that you and I could be forgiven. So as we drink and we taste a little bit of that this morning in these cups, let it remind you of how much Christ loves you, that he would come and shed his blood for you. He would endure the bitterness of paying the price of sin, taking the wrath that we deserve to save you and me and give us the joy and peace that we have today. Let's drink this cup together. If you look at your empty cup, you'll also notice the inside of it is going to be a little bit stained now. The juice will leave its, its mark on it. And as you keep the cup, that'll darken a little bit there. And I hope that as you see this, you'll remember the fact that it was the blood of Christ which covered the stain of your sin. He shed his blood that you and I could be forgiven. Amen. The birth of Jesus was a result of a whole bunch of surprising things happening. The death of Jesus was a surprising thing when it took place too. Most people thought that Christ would show up, he would come in, he would destroy their enemies and fight big battles, he'd be this conquering king. But in his first advent, Christ came as a servant. He died a humble, sacrificial death to save us from our sins. And he promised there will be a second advent. A second coming in which that expectation of the conquering king, the mighty warrior who will defeat all his enemies, there we'll see that take place. You and I, we live today, look forward to the second advent of Christ. 
Today, we're going to maybe open a few more gifts at home. You're going to have meals and fun and celebrate. But my prayer is that you would remember that every surprise gift, every joyous feeling you have this time of season, the greatest gift of all comes from knowing and worshiping and following Jesus Christ.